0: welcome back everybody we're here for another episode of comeback stories and we are back for round two with mark rose human connection specialist and founder of create the love thanks for coming back
1: i mean hopefully it's like a second time coming back like Jordan was pretty good the second time so i hope (laughs) I hope I can, uh, you know, get that better. at
0: right. it. Well, it is the name of our podcast. So yeah, I'm coming back.
1: back again. I got a haircut mm-hmm. since last time. So, you know, I'm feeling fresh.
0: Yes, sir. I'm ready. I love it, man. We're diving in. We're going right in. so I'm really curious on what is your definition of self-love mm. today?
1: Yeah, that might, who knows? <laughs> that might evolve. Um, I think that self-love is a, a collection of rituals and habits. And I think it's the intention of how you go through your day you know self-love is something that you know i think we often think is a destination like oh i finally got there i love myself and certainly we can m- maybe be reflective or mindful of a moment and be like oh yeah I've, i really feel a sense of uh, admiration for myself um in the book when things fall apart the author uh pema chodron talks about this principle of my tree, mm-hmm. and it's this idea of and I'm sure you're familiar is like becoming best friends with yourself. And so not just like a sense of admiration or like uh, bubble baths and chocolate and all the things that we might think of as self-love, it's about actually developing a sense of reverence for yourself, like becoming your own best friend. And I think that goes beyond the you know, exercise practices, meditation, these, these tools that we use to access self-reflection and um, recognizing our patterns and the choices. But I do really believe also that if your choices are aligned with your values, then you will love yourself. If you don't love your choices, you won't love yourself. You know, I think that's kind of like a full stop. And that's why even if you make a choice that's out of integrity, you discover what your integrity is. You discover what your values are. And we can get caught in the shame cycle of making poor choices. And I know we're all familiar with the shame cycle that you make a choice, and then it sort of doubles down if you don't have the tools to rescue yourself, like community, like um, meditation, commitments, you know, stuff like that.
0: Um, so yeah, the tools to rescue yourself. But we know we—I've come to understand that we must participate in our own rescue. And I think yeah. a lot of I was, and a lot of people were waiting for somebody else to rescue us or blaming. And I really feel like my life, and even in sobriety and post-sobriety, like really changed when I took ownership of my life yeah. and really was, that, was the one that participated in it, where I came and rescued myself.
1: Well, yeah, like who's going to come save us? You know, that's the, I think that's the child desire, right? It can come from a good place. It's not to like shame that. But it's still a longing that is adolescent or sort of inf- like an infant. And if we didn't get that as kids, of course, we're going to long for it. If we want to feel like we're enough, that someone will finally recognize our pain or love us enough or choose us or stay for us or whatever it is, as soon as you place any of those needs in someone else, they can't just love you. And that's, I mean, that's such a, that's what most relationships are like caught in this wounding pattern where you don't just get to be together because you're participating in the cycles of wounding each other, you know? And so, yeah, I think that that recognition of, entering into sobriety, you know, I think um, interventions are powerful, obviously, because they work most of the time or often, maybe not most of the time, but in their reflection of saying, I love you so much that I just can't participate in the way you're continuing to be. I will no longer enable you. And so what's ultimately happening there is saying, I trust that this pain will get you to a place where you will save yourself. This may be me cutting you off, maybe whatever. I remember Russell Brand saying in his work on recovery that mm-hmm. when you save people from the bottom, you
0: scrape along it,
1: Whoa. right? Like, you prevent them mm-hmm. from bottoming out.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, my mom comes to mind when you say that. My mom, God bless her. She just came to San Diego yesterday, picked her up, um, but she's so blinded in love. She loves so hard that she oftentimes made my bottom so much deeper because she would come rescue me. Mm -hmm. And blinded by love, and there's probably some codependency, and just really a lack of tools and a lack of boundaries, which now that I'm saying that out loud is maybe its own lack of self-love. Because as you were explaining the intervention process, I'm like, that's actually boundaries for the people participating in the intervention, which still is rooted in their own self-love, like saying, yeah. I've never connected that until you explained it, but it's like, wow, there's so much there. that's all comes back to self-love in so many ways. Well, think
1: about when someone in an intervention says I'll no longer participate in this. You're right. They're healing codependent patterns of enabling, which is often masked as I love so much, I love all out. Most of the com- codependent side of self-abandonment and trying to rescue people, it keeps one person stuck in... No, I'm never enough for someone to just step up or stand up or choose me. And the other person who's maybe the addict or whatever they're you know, suffering with, they have the belief or we have the belief that we're broken. So in order to maintain the relational structure the way it is, whether it's romantic, parent-kid, brother-sister, whatever it is, friends, it requires that one person still believes they're broken and the other one still believes that they need to fix them. And so they're usually patterns from childhood, right, identities that we have. And so we source our worth or value or significance or maintain safety and connection. So that's why it's not to be villainized, but they're not healthy ways of relating. And so when, when someone gets sober, you often see the people who were trying to get them sober all the time with nothing to do anymore, right? They don't have a job. And then their addiction is trying to save and it's like, imagine if they put all that energy into themselves. Well, I think often it's a way of distracting so they don't have to orient towards themselves.
2: I mean, I feel like there's so many times I've shown up in relationships, uh, even though I was always manipulative or, um, you know, really in it for my own agenda, I came in as the, the broken one, mm-hmm. like masquerading behind the manipulation. And, you know, it's really... And that makes sense why you say self-love is rituals and habits because my natural inclination is not to love myself because I have yeah. a very long, like, I always think of SpongeBob. I don't know if a lot of people watch SpongeBob, but there's one where he like has a scroll and it run, the paper runs <laughs> along the ground. <laughs> yeah, and did. it's like uh, that's how the list of things where my choices didn't align with um, the best version of myself. Like, you don't like your choices, you're not going to love yourself. So I have so much experience in not liking my choices that – I need repetition and practice and habits to be in place uh for me to not operate at a deficit there. For yeah. me to even be started on this path of self love. So it's like I hear that and just circling back to the definition that you had in the beginning, like it makes so much sense just for my story alone.
1: Yeah, me too. You know, this identification, you know, I m- I remember my friend saying that beliefs are just thoughts that you think over and over again that become your own. Like there, someone else says something to you about you, or you have an, ex- an experience where it's not explicitly said, but let's say your mom leaves or your dad leaves. I'm not worthy of someone staying for. So the thought that you think over and over again becomes a belief you hold about yourself. And it's intentional, important work to be able to shift beliefs. I mean, at, at the core of everything is changing what you believe about yourself. And the fastest way to change a belief is to just do its opposite. You know, but to do it in one moment, like, you know, last time we spoke, I talked about laying a boundary, how a boundary creates self-worth. And it requires self-worth. And the same thing is true when you're changing a belief. You might believe that you're uh, not worthy of being loved. But for the first time, you stop pursuing someone who's unavailable. And you're like, oh, my God, I never thought I could do this. And it's kind of an addictive process that you have to break. Like if you're someone who lives in the world of booty calls, and all of a sudden you just stop making booty calls. It's like there's a drug that and an arousal that you're used to using as a way of regulating that you stop pursuing. And so you're in this moment where you're like, I've never had to sit with this. But you start to cultivate a different belief. I'm worthy of being shown up for because I'm showing up. You know, and it's it's always source from self. You know, as much as it's like we wish someone would save us, it's it's always us. Even relationship stuff. Like people come to me about breakups. That's usually what people find my work through, or struggles in relationship. 100% of the time, it always comes back to them. They come to try to get someone back, or heal from something. But what, and as you guys both know, you ultimately always end up meeting yourself, or deepening your relationship with yourself.
0: Your definition with self-love being habits and rituals, I think so much of self- love that doesn't get talked about enough is accountability. But it's really staying accountable to those habits and rituals and keeping the promises you make to yourself. When you say you're gonna do something in the morning that you follow through on it because when you don't, you're not gonna feel great about yourself. And when you're not feeling great about yourself, we tend to either project it outward, stay small. Um, But it is that belief system that I think all of our belief systems at some point need to be uprooted because they're broken and they're they're rooted in our conditioning from our younger years um which comes back to just the power of awareness but i think that's why i love you so much and and um some of our belief system i believe brad lee was sitting in here, and he said what's what do you guys think can change a belief system and he said new information Mm. so when you get Mm. new information and and really it's the way that you articulate things specifically and it's not just me I have a like a a big circle of friends that are like you're also your number one fans and we'll (laughs) often talk about it a lot but it's just the way that you're able to provide information Um, I know it's helped me so much in the relationship I have with myself but also just in relationship in general
1: yeah first off thank you so much for having a fan club around that's that feels good yeah to know just that words can impact I think one of the things that I often hear is just like when you when someone can put into words something that you are emoting or you're feeling but you've just never been able to organize in a way and that's usually what I do is just listen to other people or learn things through myself and then sort of write them out or think them out kind of out loud often in my solo episodes the the thing that you said that I really love well new information I think of that quote from Tony Robbins that we change for two reasons one we learn so much we have to or it hurts so much we have to, and I think uh, knowledge knowledge that we learn so much we have to actually creates pain, because we now know something that we're not integrating yet. And I think the other part which you said is that, like that humility, that like space of being willing, because so much. If I was receiving feedback when I was younger from a partner. She said, like, hey, you're not showing up, or I feel like you take me for granted. I would have gotten defensive about that. I would have been so, like, I'm not enough. Like, it's just more evidence that she's giving to the thing that I'm trying to hide anyways, like the, the, like, stoicism and the chivalry and the humor and the smiling, like, all this protective mechanism, and when I would be hit with something that was real, that was true, I couldn't hold it. And, and I think what happens when we start to build self-love and self-worth is that receiving feedback isn't something we're afraid of holding anymore because hearing I'm not showing up, it doesn't mean that I'm not a good person. It just means that there's active information that's saying, how oh, I could be a better person or a better partner. Oh, my God, it took me so long to actually see a partner's feedback as a evolution or an opportunity for growth i mean i I apologize to all my girlfriends when i was in my teens and 20s because i certainly did not have capacity
0: not open to receiving it and um i believe that if a partner or anybody in relationship is feeling a certain way they're 100 percent right
1: yeah so
0: and so it's us it's uh, and so it's on us to listen to be able to listen and for a man me personally to humble myself Initially, when I get feedback, that first couple seconds, it's like, oof, any kind of feedback. Yeah, me too. Doesn't feel good for a couple seconds. And then it's just like open back up and receiving it because ultimately, especially if it's in any type of relationship, that if they consciously know how to um, express whatever isn't being met, whatever need isn't being met, there's so much growth there. So much. And,
1: uh, you know, I, I never used to see my partner or feedback from, like my mom gave me feedback recently that I was really grateful for. And I never used to see feedback as that. Like, you, you know that saying, you can't see the forest when you're in the trees? That's so true relationally. Like, you don't know where your limitations are. You don't, even when you're in it, you don't know that you're hitting your, li- you, you often think it's their limitation, not your own, you know, which is, again, the brilliance of the way that we see things so that we don't have to have our own self-worth impacted. But when you can actually hold what I believe is healthy shame, which is the recognition that you can be better, then you let it, you know, Francis Weller, who I love as a teacher, he would say, you let it cook you. And I think about that a lot of, like, you sit in the actual pain of it, and you let it cook you. So that you can ripen, you can become better, you can grow, you can change. And if you do that, you're going to love yourself.
2: So beautiful. That's where I feel like we talk about meditation so much. I feel like it shows up in that way now, for me, as I'm trying to grow as far as in the emotional intelligence space where it's um, meditation creating that space, uh, because when that feedback is presented to itself, the very first inclination of something that is trying me or like, you know, <laughs> is calling something out in me, like, I have to be present in that moment to be able to make the choice to not pounce on it like a wolf. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Exactly. Totally, like, totally. Just the first, because like, if, if somebody puts a compliment out there, like, uh, like you're you're worthy of, of of love. Like you're gonna be a great husband. You're gonna be a great father. Like the first inclination of that, I'm not pouncing on that. <laughs> I'm I'm pouncing on like the negative, right? The the the, the person what's perceived as critical. So I feel like you know we have to develop that habit, that ritual, that honestly like that reflex, like that subconscious reaction to where it's like when it's coming at me, it's not trying me, but I have to make that choice in the moment and realize that it's my choice to make. Uh, And I have power in that because a lot of times before I didn't realize I had the power. I was just kind of at the mercy of whoever was giving feedback.
1: Yeah, that reactivity, you know, I think uh, uh, responsibility, the ability to respond, right? That space that you're talking about. Meditation was so powerful and continues to be powerful for me as a tool because what I felt it's done is turned that like millisecond or one second. It feels like three seconds it feels like there's actually a choice before it, didn't, it was like, I was like you, you know, pounce on that thing, you know, make sure I don't have to deal with that or feel that or negate their feelings, gaslight them, you know, whatever I need to do to preserve my very delicate feeling of self-worth. I'm curious too, uh, what has broadened your guys' ability to do that for me, cold plunging, you know, I have a cold plunge and that, that has completely, that's just broadened it even more because I can sit in the cold or cold shower and be like, my body's saying you're going to die. <laughs> and I can consciously explore and say, I'm, I'm not, I'm safe. And so it, it it allows me to feel my body's desire to run or react, but actually stay present to the body and not not let it run me out of the experience that's actually expanding me.
0: I did a really powerful intentional listening exercise with my coach a few years back. And it's the same exercise I now pass along to my coaching clients, but What gets in the way of intentional listening, the three main components are typically judgment, distractions, and defenses. So when you hear that pouncing, like, that's what I want to do initially is defend. The moment that I'm defending, I can't hear. I can't actually listen to what they're saying. Yeah. So to be able to drop the defenses, um, it's been a practice. It will always be a practice. Same. Um, but I think, yeah, meditation, cold plunging, these things that kind of um, yoga. So in yoga, I always talk about in the practice in postures to be able to meet our edge and soften, to get to the edge. In yoga, you do not push past your edge. We do that plenty of other times in our practice, in our daily life. But yoga is about find your edge and soften to be able to get to your edge and find peace there. Mm. It's a practice. That's what that's what yoga offers us this valuable tool that we can take off of our mat so that when we get pushed to our edge, we've been in the practice. We know, we've we been there. We know how to handle it. We don't have to manage it with our mind. We can just work through it with our breath because our, our breath can get us through anything. But I think the yoga and those poses to explore our edge and not go ego and push past... We're not grip and grasp and hold on and cling on when we're at our edge, I've but just to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just to be able to... Yeah. In yoga. Just to be able to... Well, it's like I always give the analogy of grippy toes. So when your toes are clinging <laughs> into the mat, done. that is an illusion of control. Mm. It's our perception of control. So we're gripping, grasping, but it's probably because our back leg is like not doing something right. But yoga um, really, I think, is the most valuable thing that's allowed me to find my edge and soften so that I don't take it out on anybody else that I can respond versus react yeah
1: I feel that with yoga
2: yeah I feel like anytime you put yourself your body in an uncomfortable position I feel like even just work like working out like a lot of people have their like a lot of people want to be swole and like jacked and like look a certain way and be perceived a certain way but for me I feel like a perspective on working out to where it's like you get pushed to that edge and you have a choice to make whether it's um to go with the comfortable choice of like you know maybe easing off of it or you know, not going past that line, that, that place of comfort and going beyond that, um, I feel like that is a way in the practice, if I'm present to that and realizing that in the moment, it's like, hmm, I continuously put myself in this difficult position um, to gain the repetition in choosing the choice that I wanna choose because in this moment of discomfort, it's very easy for me to choose the comfortable reaction, the comfortable feeling, and I feel like that can translate and transcend just that physical workout environment into my emotions, into the way that I think, because I'm taking that experience with me wherever I go. And if I have repetition and experience, like you said, in self-love, like that choice I made in that arena, you know, how, how you do something is how you do everything, essentially. So I feel like uh, with the right perspective, working out can train you for that.
1: Yeah, I think the when we try to change beliefs, I think the shifting of beliefs relationally actually takes longer. What I mean by that is from the first reflection of a pattern or something that you need to implement relationally, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of... Mo- you also have to have the moment available, right? And so even to lay a boundary, you have to like, have the opportunity to lay one. And with exercise and food, because so many of our dysfunctional patterns exist in our food, and, and that's both because food is not necessarily, it's so processed. There's so many things to it. But what I, what I mean is that if I start to choose food differently, more intentionally, quit sugar, quit caffeine, whatever it is that I'm choosing, I immediately will feel better. If I start exercising, I'll immediately feel better. So I think any psychological shift, like any desire to shift something relationally, actually pays to also start meditation, exercise, and just eat differently. And you might not wanna do everything all at once. I know some people are like the all or nothing. But what happens is is you immediately get a shift from exercise and going to the edge exercise-wise. I think one of the most powerful things about hiking, for example, or doing a hard kettlebell exercise, is that when you complete a trail hiking, you're one of point zero 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 one percent of the population that has ever done that hike. You know, and that's something to be proud of. And I think that just those little shifts are so monumental. And I think you just get direct feedback, so beliefs change much quicker.
0: Mm-hmm. I love this conversation yeah. so much. Um, I was thinking about I was listening to one of your podcasts a few weeks ago and you were talking about betrayal and I started to <coughs> like wonder why why people betray themselves if I think about in my last relationship why I did. And I'm, I'm understanding a little bit of that, but I think is there some common themes on why people betray themselves or abandon the authentic version of themselves when it comes to relationships, romantic relationships?
1: Well, you know, I think last episode we talked about the value that we place in relationship, right? In being in a relationship. And that's part of it, but also... You know, when people self-betray or self-abandon or don't prioritize themselves in order to maintain connection. So it's a security-based thing. It's a safety-based thing. It's just it's not functional. You know, it's not actually contributing to a healthy relationship because ultimately what you're doing is saying, I don't trust you, whoever you're in relationship with, that you can actually hold all of me, that you can actually honor my needs. And then the relationship becomes a place that doesn't honor your needs, and often will be the victim of that. Well, there was no space for me. And that can be true, right? So I'm not minimizing when maybe you have a manipulative person on the other side of that. But every relationship that we're in, we are agreeing to be in. And that's not negating the experience of victimization, but to say, what are we going to do with the information we get? So I might be, I, I want to be really cognizant of where am I self abandoned. Where do I collapse or put other people's needs ahead of mine? You know, when I talk to people about where they self-abandon or whatever it might be in a relationship, you just ask them, like, how old do you feel in that moment? And often it's really young. You know, like, I definitely self-abandoned a lot in a relationship. And it was because I didn't want to appear needy. I didn't want to appear um, like, like a controlling guy. Because I grew up in the 90s you know, in a lot of the, and this is true of today, the conversation about men is, you know, men are bad, men are rapists, toxic masculinity, and so I didn't want to identify with any, I didn't want anything to do with that, and so I often had this sort of righteous energy of like, I'll be nicer than your ex-boyfriend, or nicer than your current boyfriend, you know, and thinking that there was really value in that, but there wasn't, the women, at the end of the day, wouldn't respect me, because unconsciously and sometimes consciously they're like will you forgo your own integrity for me will you fold your purpose for me will you do something that's not in alignment with your values will you put up with something and this could be in any relationship but will you put up with m- something that's not kind to you for me and when we're in people pleasing or enabling or accommodating uh, and self-abandoning we often will but there's this line in Robert Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, uh, where he says, if you don't stand up to her, she won't believe you'll stand up for her.
0: Oof.
1: And that to me, I remember when I read it, I was like, oh shit. Like I've definitely, I can see that I wouldn't be respected because it, when push comes to shove, I couldn't be trusted. Because ultimately the, you know, the, the saying in that book is, nice guys are anything but nice. Because ultimately... The kindness is contrived. it's trying to manipulate or meet a need um, and wanting to be a peer, to appear as good. But y- if you want to be real in relationship, you can't be concerned about appearing as good. Sure, you should be generous, kind, respectful, all those things. Absolutely. But you're not if you want to be real in relationship and have real authentic connections, you can't try to protect people from the feelings of being upset with you or hurt. You know, you want to obviously not go out intentionally to hurt people, but you want to tell the truth. And grown-up adult relationships are not about getting along all the time. That's bullshit. No one does. They're about repairing. They're about meeting each other's needs, but also not collapsing. No one wants that. You know, I think we ultimately think we do or think someone does, but it never
2: leads anywhere good.
1: I hope that makes sense. No, it it
2: definitely does. And it's like, I see so many, so much like examples of emotional balance in that. Um, I heard this this pastor I listened to say one time, he said like, we as people, uh, we have uh, legitimate needs that we respond to with illegitimate responses. Mm, That's good. uh, Like the need to feel secure or to feel loved is a legitimate need. Like it's something that we all desire, but the ways that we go about doing that is there balance in that? And by betraying ourselves, abandoning ourselves all times that I've done that, it's like, yeah, I want that need, I want to feel it, but it's like, where am I going to have that need fulfilled? And if I'm going outside of me, that's a problem. That's not that's not the response that's gonna get me the result I want. The intention is there, but the actions don't necessarily match.
1: Well, and then the relationships are designed around pretending. Mm-hmm. You know, and then like we don't even get to be in authentic connections. That's our part. And then we're like no one ever sees me, you know. Like people don't see, they don't hear me, and it's like, well, you're not being you, you know. And I remember when I recognized Ooh. that. Of like, wow, how can you ever feel fully loved if you're not fully present in the relationship? You're too busy image managing, which doesn't work.
0: That was my abandonment. I mean, that was it right there. Oof. What do you think? Uh, uh, I'm guessing most people reach out to you when they're in some pain. Based on the relationship, what do you think the purpose of pain is? And I I want you to talk about. There's something I've always asked myself that I've heard from you. It's like, what is this pain asking of me?
1: Mm. Well, I think pain can serve us, right? You know, it's information. I think, like all emotions, it's information. It's telling us. You know, when you think about emotional pain, the challenges that uh, society, I'd say, pharma industry, like all these things, places have said that. Um, if you're depressed, if you're sad, if you're grieving, there's something wrong with you. Like There's a problem, and you need a pill to fix that. And I'm not saying that that's not appropriate sometimes. But what it's done is, it, because it's not explained, is that it's made, it, made us believe that feelings are either bad or good, and if I'm experiencing what we code as bad feelings, then there's something wrong with me, and I need to fix what's wrong with me. But imagine if, much like we were talking about before, Imagine if we started to orient around the thought, I'm feeling these things. Instead of what's wrong with me, which then feeds the narrative I'm not enough, is what's right with me. Like what's wise about me that I feel these things? Because imagine if, and usually that comes from our feelings being negated or it not being safe to express or process feelings as kids. And so we automatically believe there's, especially if our family, let's say, didn't have space for anger or didn't have space for grief, or didn't have space for anything but happiness or positive thoughts, then we're going to not have access to any of these feelings. They're present, but we're not safe to express them, because if we express them, we might not, you know, we might get scorned, we might get bullied in school, there could be so many things. But the pain emotionally, when I think about it physically, like if you touch a stove, you, you burn your hand, you're not going to do that again. You know, if you... If you were to hurt your hand, you would stop doing the thing. But if your heart's hurting, and you think there's something wrong with me that I'm hurting, and maybe you're in a relationship dynamic that you're participating in, and maybe it's your own behaviors, could be addictions, right? that you know is informing you that it doesn't feel good. But if there is an inherent belief something's wrong with you, and that's why you feel that way, as opposed to that information is actually trying to get you to do something differently. like. If you're depressed or anxious in a relationship, that's not a sign there's something wrong with you. That's a sign that there's just something not being expressed, something not being listened to. Because if we were to then use it as information that our environment needs to shift or our choices need to shift or both, then we'd actually change our state. So pain to me is transformative. I mean, I think truthfully till we recognize it, we usually change when we have to. You know, it's usually like the rock bottom. You know, and, it, and we know rock bottoms from the perspective of like drugs or alcohol, but we can have relational rock bottoms, and and I think that can be uh, breakups, that can be divorces, that could be just simply disruptions. You know, it could be conflict that's repeated over and over again. It could be infidelity. It could be lying. It could be there's so many different ways again that we have access to discover where we're out of alignment. Where our integrity, we're out of integrity, where we need to grow, where we need to change. Um, and yeah, you know, most of us go on the search for personal growth or relational growth or therapy or whatever um, because of pain. And, you know, a lot of couples turn towards therapy when it's too late. Yeah, by the time someone says, hey, I'm not feeling connected, or I'd like to go to therapy, or I'd like to read this book. If that's not enacted upon, it's about two years till they leave. And the challenging part, and depending on which research you look at, but the research demonstrates that women leave more than men. And women tend to turn towards their romantic partner for support and things like that less than men do. So When a relationship ends, men lose their emotional support system generally. And they're more likely to get into another relationship quickly. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for a number of reasons. One, we don't really have men's groups or support groups, we don't tend to talk about emotional things. And, um, you know, it's probably safer to talk with our partner, Uh, it feels safer. So yeah, that was a long answer to your question. Oh, it was great.
0: That. I can't remember if we brought this up on the last conversation last week because I think I blacked out from the depth and, <laughs> um, and inspiration that was, um, came about last week. But I, I think there's a relationship to pain. And I was sharing with someone the story around my knee and all the physical pain and the trauma and the surgeries and um, how sometimes in class I will grab my knee and kiss it, like give it some love i wish i could <laughs> i
1: don't even know if I there,
0: but. <laughs> and my friend was like instead of like babying it thank the pain mm. like thank the pain the pain is why the pain is why i'm sitting here right now the physical pain i had in my knee that had these surgeries that led me to the, the addiction and all of that right. thank the pain like change change that around you can give it some love but just thank the actual pain because of what it's done for your life mm and that's beautiful yeah to change that perspective shift which i am so grateful for that but you know i was babying and nursing and i've protected my knee for years i mean favoring my right leg but to to really turn that around and go right to the pain and just say thank you because um, i do believe that that pain can teach us more than we'll ever learn from anybody else about ourselves mm. there's so much there
1: yeah the hard times will always teach you so much, you know. I think of the most transformative moments in my life were all the most painful, you know. And I think that's available to all of us, you know. It's if we will, if we're willing to turn towards it, yeah. it is the path to liberation for everybody involved, you know. And I think it's uh, Glennon Doyle who says that there's no such thing as one-way liberation. Like if if you're freed, the other person is. They just might not know it yet. You know, and that's I think important to remember. At a a guy I met at a cafe who followed my work, and he said something so profound to me. He was, um, he was serving us. And he said to me, you know, I left my relationship, and I said to her, or I had the recognition that the relationship wasn't for me anymore. And he's like, I said to her, and I'm not sure that she understood it yet. It was pretty fresh when he was talking to me. He said, but if it wasn't for me, it wasn't for her. And I thought, isn't that so fascinating, like... One of the qualifiers for us relationally is that if someone doesn't want to be with you, they're not the one. <laughs> like, first off, there, I don't believe there's just one because that, again, just creates more scarcity and, and not really as much free choice. But I thought that was so beautiful, of like just the recognition, like, of course. And she might not recognize that yet because she wants it to be with him, but it can't possibly be with him because he doesn't want to be with her. It's so simple. But if someone had said that to me when I was like 19 and experiencing betrayal, I would have been like still pining over it, you know, that's the beauty of maybe uh, age that you get to learn,
2: (laughs) you know, yeah. Um, I want to change the topic a little bit. I want to ask you, um, what was the process like of fully embracing the journey to be in the work that you're in now? Because I don't feel like a lot of people would be like, yeah, I'm going to. Be on social media and help people with their relationships a lot of people might be like how are you going to do that like <laughs> why would you do that like they would I mean just the world we live in they'd push you to a more conventional route something that has proven results that will get you a salary that'll get you these things like what were some of maybe some of the obstacles and anxieties that you faced in like fully embracing this work and really chasing after it oh man I
1: remember there were a lot of anxieties especially because I you know I was living the life i'd been taught to live you know i talked on the last one about my i was 27 got engaged engagement and you know i was right on target i was checking all the boxes and i was a rep i was a pharmaceutical rep i was making reasonable money and you know i could be a highly qualified provider and you know my friend john morrow who's an artist says uh, if you want to find what you love find what breaks your heart and you know, I felt this call. I always loved human behavior. I always loved understanding relationships. Uh, but it was more from a space of manipulation, you know, how to get someone to buy something. But with when I wanted to dive deep into understanding relationships for myself, which is really where it was born for. I'm from, I wanted to understand why do some relationships end and others not? Um, why do some people stay together f- in love and others not? Why do we cast so much judgment when relationships end? And in the journey of studying all that, I just felt like I, you know, at the time, this would have been 14, 15 years ago, I was thinking, like, I felt like no one was telling the truth about relationships. Like, like I didn't feel like there was anyone teaching that shared and gave permission for things to end. And, you know, that sounds so weird to think, but I just wanted someone to say, like, you're still a good person even though you ended a relationship. Like you, actually it was weird to be feeling like I was more connected to myself, but feeling more judged. and you know the which I think I mentioned last time, but when I started to write about them, it was really from the place of, "I want to share what I'm learning about my own stuff." And so it was really taught and, and still is taught from the place of, "Here's what I've learned academically, here's what I'm learning." from conversations, here's what I'm learning from other teachers, here how that applies to me. There was a lot of anxiety about leaving certainty and a job and an identity and then leaping into, you know, I remember people saying to me, like, just leap and the universe will catch you. And I was like, you know, <laughs> like, keep smoking weed, buddy. Like, that, <laughs> like that sounds so abstract. Uh, yeah. But now I realize that there is something to that you know, there's something to trusting a purpose that's trying to be born from you, usually through your pain. And I think, you know, there's that saying, turn your mess into your message. And um, I ultimately believe that we become the teachers we needed. And then really our work is about just teaching younger versions of ourselves. You know, And that's really how I've thought about my own. So how did I overcome it? just by doing it, like recognizing, you know, there's a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyways. And I remember that being sort of like a Bible for me for a while, of, of like fears along for the ride, and it's got useful, you know, it's got some purpose. But I was breaking free of paradigms of who I thought I needed to be relationally uh, as a man. you know, all these identities were crumbling, and just another one of how you make money, what's a reasonable job, you know, you start to realize that it's all just constructs, and you know, often bullshit. Like the limitations that we're taught, like you can't do this, you can't get this. Kind of. I remember being a kid. You know, what? Did, I'm not sure if you guys learned this, but a lot of what I learned was like, get a job, become a doctor or an accountant or, I don't know, what's another one, an engineer. I was like, man, all of them work so hard, and they got to go to school for so long. I don't even like any of those things, but so much status is associated with those jobs and you know I think a lot of people still identify like if you're not one of those things then you haven't your parents might not be proud of you I know culturally there's different status jobs you know so yeah it's been a it's been a continuous uh unfolding Mm.
0: your writing is so special and one of my favorite episodes is one of your solo episodes I believe it's let yourself be loved and in that episode you I'm not sure, is it your blog or your, I don't know where you, with the context of where you wrote it, but maybe I'll just let you yeah. take this piece. Because I asked you to bring it in and read it. And you're yeah, so I was kind like, to what was actually it? do that. I don't
1: I couldn't remember it. Um, it was a post. And it was a post about, you know, I often just will reflect on having worked with someone or or just a new awareness that I have about myself. You know, so much of the conversation we have about commitment. And we often will say, especially to men, you're just afraid of commitment. And there's something inherent that, because I was told that a lot, you're just afraid of commitment, as opposed to, like, what was the, you know, we were talking about pain. Like, what was the wisdom in my anxiety? What was the wisdom in my reluctance? There was so much, but I didn't have a guide or someone to be able to extract that from me or, or say, like, hey, there's brilliance in this, let's explore it. And so I had someone tell me that they were told they're afraid of commitment, and I started to really reflect on it, and then this is what I wrote from it. You're not afraid of commitment. You're afraid of being hurt by someone you're committed to. It's not that you don't believe you're worthy of an amazing partner. It's that you don't trust love, and in turn, you don't trust yourself, or sorry, you don't trust that you'll know how to hold it that you'll hold on to yourself when you meet it, stand up for yourself to protect it, or walk away when the love is no longer present. The solution to this is that you have to learn how to be committed to yourself and your truth above everything else. You have to learn how to have boundaries around your heart, your desires, your values. You have to become a warrior who has your own back always, in all ways. When we know that we won't sell ourselves out in the face of anything, all of a sudden everything becomes possible. You must love yourself unconditionally above all else to be able to share love with another. It is this trust in yourself that will allow you to trust love because ultimately, love is who you are, not what you seek. You know, when, um, when I read that, you know, I remember someone saying to me that people don't believe they're unworthy of love because that was sort of the core belief that I thought everyone, like at the core of all our patterns is really like, I'm not worthy of being understood, protected, safe, love. But I thought, well, at the core of that, it's still a belief that I'm not worthy of being listened to, or I'm not worthy, so just I'm not worthy. And I remember this person said to me, no, it's a lack of trust. It's a lack of trust in love. Innately, we all have deeper down a belief that we're worthy that it's possible that we should be treated with respect, reverence, all that kind of stuff. But it's that we don't trust that when we're in connection, we're going to experience that. And, um, Mm. that now I remember reading that, that, that it was really about, I had this big shift of like, oh, it's not that I believe I'm unworthy. It's that I don't trust love because of my experiences with it.
0: Mm. At the root of that is it. I don't trust, (coughs) I don't trust myself.
1: Yeah. Like I don't, I don't trust myself, I don't trust that I'll stand up to someone Mm -hmm. who is breaching that trust or betraying me, but yeah, it's really a lack of self-trust.
2: Wow, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, I need a picture of that before before you leave this room.
1: (laughs) I got you, (laughs) I got you.
0: Can you talk a little bit about just the process of processing grief? Again, maybe when it comes to, to relationships, um, it's just so interesting, I think I maybe shared this on the last podcast, but as I navigated and walked through my transition of ending a cycle and a breakup as I've attracted maybe coaching clients that are simil- in, a, in a similar situation yeah. and stuck, but just how that works is wild, but maybe how, to, how people can be more present and actually slow down through the process of change and grief instead of, like you said earlier, running from and turn towards instead.
1: Yeah, it's crazy how uh, synchronicity brings together someone who's going through what you've just gone through or something similar. You know, I'm sure that you both have experienced too in the journey of sobriety. Like, it just brings people who are struggling with similar, especially as you bring new awarenesses. Yeah, you know, with grief, um, when Kylie and I broke up, we had been together around five years, I think, and then broke up uh, for almost a year and, and then got back together. And when we broke up, the relationship was over. Like It was done. I was moving on. And she was moving on. And uh, that was in September 2019. And I remember just feeling so much grief. Like grief that it was the first time I'd ever been through a breakup sober. Which those are different. Hmm. (laughs) You know? Like I'd been protected by, you know, the bottom of a pint glass from my guests finding the bottom that grief that sort of demands you to feel. And I had the recognition and the realization that a lot of grief is old grief. Like, I could tell that what I was excavating was not just about her. It was about all the times I hadn't sat with sadness. And it brought me back to, like, 17 and 19 when I told the story last time about uh, going out on Halloween and trying to have a one-night stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I totally bypass that grief. and You know, I, I think a lot of the times we try to save people from feelings we don't know the value of. Oh. You know, like when someone's going through grief or is experiencing anger or whatever it is, we often try to, to rescue them from it. Um, but when someone's going through a breakup and grieving, I don't do that at all. I remind them that I'm here or th- if they need someone. How can I help? What do you need from me? But I know the value of grief. I don't know that there's a more powerful, transformative emotion. I think anger shifts us, like it's one of those that that even accompanies grief a lot of the time. But grief is one of those things that demands to be felt. You know, it roots you. It, it like makes it think about depression often, right? It like makes you immobile. Um, but the, m- m- the key to moving through it is continuing to ask it questions, continuing to process it often with other people, you know, and when someone's going through a breakup, often they'll say, like, how do I get over my ex, or, um, you know, how do I move forward? And I think sometimes grief, in order to process it, isn't about moving forward, it's actually about staying still. And then, uh. It's about doing the things that holding on is holding you back from, you know, in the context of relationship. Like, oh, I'm not doing that thing now because they hurt me so much. It's Like, oh, yeah, you get to blame them and resent them for the fact that you haven't expanded or grown or done something. It's a way that we think we're getting back at them, which, meanwhile, they're having a pina colada and on vacation in Cancun, not thinking about it, and here we are thinking that they are, or or that our pain and suffering will... Somehow make it back to them. Maybe if we put up a Taylor Swift or a Dell quote, they'll <laughs> recognize you know, how much we're suffering. Uh, and I say that having done that once. <laughs> so I put up a Taylor Swift quote when I was going through a breakup years ago, and my friend just texted me and said, delete it, it's too far. We need to talk. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay.
2: It's like drinking poison and thinking they're going to die. That's yeah, the quote. Right,
0: yeah. yeah. That's the resentment. Yeah. Your way your way with words are just amazing. I feel like, yeah, you articulate things that I um, have in my heart but can't, from a relationship standpoint, always say, and it's always, mm. just brings a lot of gratitude um, to having you sit here in the flesh with us today and, and break this down.
1: Man, it's an honor to be able to sit with you both and, and chat with you about, you know, all these things that uh, I don't think we often get to chat about as men. You know, like, how many dude circles right now are talking about grief? You know, right?
2: Listening to Adele. Probably not many. Mm, yeah, and just you know, I, I'm thinking, I'm I'm seeing the sign of comeback stories flashing behind us, right? And I'm like, a lot of when people think of a comeback story, it's like what people are coming back from, um, like where am, and where mm. am I going from there? But it's like this conversation is reminding me of like this is twofold almost. It's like what are what do we need to come back to? Mm-hmm. Like what do that, that self love, that, that honoring ourselves, that integrity within ourselves, the respect for ourselves. And it's just like that over, that overcomes me now, especially just with you sitting here. Like that thought has never overcame me. I was not sitting on that. That was something that came to me just by you being in the room and saying what you say and sharing the perspectives that you have that uh, it's a reminder for me of what I need to come back to because there are times where I'm in those moments and I don't uh, trust that love, you know what I'm saying? So. Uh thank you. So I said say thank you. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. It's almost like coming back to love. Yeah. Create the love. Come back home. Come back home to the heart. Where I think we will run, we'll turn, we'll close. But this is all about finding the practices, the information that returns us back to the essence of what we are, which is love. And if we know we are love, then we know we are loved and lovable. But I think we need, I need to be reminded, and it's great to have platforms like this. Um, one topic I want you to touch on before we wrap up is this whole idea of um, sacredness, and making things sacred. Mm. I, I hear it in your stories and in, in closing ceremonies that you've done in breakups and um, closing ceremonies of leaving houses. But just what's the importance of that for you? And how have you seen that transform your life just from just the intentionality of being sacred in the things that you do.
1: You know, I think I had an aversion to words like God or mm-hmm. sacred because I was raised uh, Catholic. And I really felt like in the experience of being raised and going to Catholic school, there, there seemed to be an actual lack of presence of God and a lack of presence of unconditional love and a lack of presence of sacredness in those circles. So I had a hard time hearing the word God or sacred and it not being associated with, like, sacrament or altar or religion. Um, But then I realized that by decoupling those things, I was taking the power back, you know? And it was really only through the birth of, or or through the relationship with Kylie that, you know, she's been the perfect partner to come back home or come back to that. And when we broke up, there was so much love present. Like, we had done everything to try to make it work. And so, really, the only, we looked at it, like, we don't, There's n- we've done the psychotherapy work together, we've done all the stuff, and the only thing that's left is we need to depart. And that was hard to embrace because you're, again, going against all these stories and thoughts about what it means to stay together and, you know... um we both teach relationships, so what does it mean about us that this relationship is not lasting? I got asked that a lot when we broke up and I said, Well, you know, the premise of my work has never been about that. It's always been about the truth and and telling the truth at the cost even of the relationship. And I mean it was one of the most powerful, potent, transformative experiences I've ever had because there was so much love present in that ending that it deepened me and her on on such another level. Like, it, it made me realize that if you can do that, then you can love somebody. Because when it ends, you're not, it's not, the love isn't dependent on the staying together, it's dependent on how we work together and who we are together. And when the relationship ended, I remember saying to her, hey, you know, what do you think about doing a closing ceremony? Like, this, that sounds great. Because we had, just by logistics and timing, the last conversation we had had about completely closing it was um, via FaceTime. And it was just, she had gotten off to Europe and, you know, it was just timing. And so we hadn't seen each other in person and we wanted to come together in person to really be on, you know, do it with honor and just have a conversation. And she said, Yeah, let's do it. So I'm like, Well, I don't even know what that is. So I Googled closing ceremony relationship and there's other crazy people who have done this <laughs> and so I sent her some ideas of you know based on what I read uh just like put together different versions and thoughts about it and I remember pulling up to with the house and thinking to myself like <clears throat> uh do I really want to do this like I had that feeling of like not really up for this this sounds like hell. And I remember asking myself, do I not want to do it because I just genuinely don't want to do it? Or do I not want to do it because it's going to require more of me than I know exists? Like, it's going to expand me. It's going to demand something of me that I I don't even know how to access. And the answer was number two. So I was like, shit. (laughs) So I went in the house. We lit a fire. And we we had a playlist for it of music that was important to us. And, you know, all that stuff is so painful, you know. <laughs> but it's also so important. And then there were three questions that we explored together. The first one was, um, what were our favorite memories? Um, what did we... I wanna remember them all correctly, but what were our favorite memories? I wanna say the second one was like, what did we learn or what did what do we most appreciate about the other person? Our favorite memories was, that might've been number two because I remember going to the second one and it fucking destroying me. Like it was, that was hard. I was like sobbing the majority of the time. And the third one was, what do we hope for the other person? That one was hard to access Um, And we talked about that, just like, you know, I know what I hope for you, but it's really hard to access that fully right now, because I was in such grief. Um, And, you know, in a a longer version of our story, there was a metaphor of a burning house, um, which if anyone wants to learn about that, we have a couple episodes called Let It Burn Part 1 and 2. And so we actually burnt a wooden house that was a tree house, or sorry, like a little bird house. And that was just really important from a sort of what it symbolized. And I mean, I left that, the house that day, totally different. I had never ended a relationship with such grace and intention. And, you know, I remember interviewing this woman on my podcast named Yoda, which is an apropos name for what she shared, but she said that. She had heard once that you should leave a relationship as you leave a house, that you prepare it for the next owner. And I never... Like, who thinks that way? Who's like, yeah, I'd love to make you... or I'd like to participate in you being a better person for your next partner, right? That's like everyone's nightmare generally. It's like, oh, now they are good. Now they... But to be able to do that intentionally and be like, yeah. Like, I actually... I really want love for you um, and I think what it also did is just it really closed it with grace it, it sanctified that word sacred It was such a sacred act it was so I mean I did a lot of the sacraments none of them felt <laughs> like that and you know a lot of the language I use now about relationship is the restoration of what is sacred for ourselves because imagine if we treat ourselves as sacred then we bring that to the relationship. We treat our partner as sacred. Then we're going to look at our defensiveness and their wounds with more care and concern. And you know, I'll often say, like, can you lay that at the altar of relationship? Because that's ultimately what we're doing is, is laying down our, our most vulnerable parts, the things we're most ashamed of. That's where they get loved is in relationship to other, and through self-love and restoring you know what is sacred in our relationship to ourselves. I got nothing <laughs> but you can do a closing ceremony on your own you know I, that was a question i got a lot after because you know sometimes it's not safe to do a closing ceremony with someone it's opening up another can of worms maybe they're toxic but you can actually just set up two chairs and you can do that act and switch chairs to answer the question for the other person and it's just as potent just as powerful
0: it's a beautiful closure, clearing, release, because I think that's a lot of times things aren't cleared, (coughs) things aren't completely closed, and you can't really truly invite anything else in until you've you've let go. That's the constant release and invite. The one consistent in this world is like in order to achieve something else or to gain, we have to sacrifice, we have to let go. So such a beautiful practice. I don't know i have the capacity i want to i mean hearing that but like many people are like wow i don't know if i could ever do that but you don't till you do it like everything right yeah yeah because
1: it's also not conventional at all like no one does that generally you know until we start to see the actual value in it because what occurred after is there was just such respect for one another there were still boundaries around communication and we did have to clear things that we were maybe both angry or resentful about, but it really set this baseline of admiration. Um, but I hear you. You know, it's it was very confronting, and the idea of doing it again, if I had to, it would not really be optional because of the level of repair, just the level of love that existed in that exchange. Um, but I know lots of people who after. I talked about it, did a podcast on it. I put it in my breakup course. Lots of people have written me being like, we did that, or I suggested that, and the person said yes, and it was one of the most beautiful experiences. So, you know, it is available to people. And as I said, you know, you don't have to do it with them. You can do it by yourself. And it's still powerful.
0: Just like this episode, I want to say again, fuck yes, Mark (laughs) Groves. Oh, man to get round two with you, to to give us the space. I know how busy you are and how much you have on your plate, but to uh, come back for round two and have these conversations, this means the world to me. Um, Grateful for your time, grateful for your friendship and connection and how you've been guiding me in a way for for many years now. Um, So much inspiration. um, Pointing out blind spots with just your words on certain things that I thought I knew that I really didn't know when it comes to relationships. So really appreciate you, brother.
1: Thanks for having me back on. I mean, in a week, I made it back. And, you know, to be able to have these conversations means a lot. And I'm grateful to be able to get to know you both personally
2: now. Yeah, man. Thank you for, uh, for two weeks of reading my mail uh, relationally. <laughs> um, but uh, just making a way that's practical for people um, to, to love themselves and have that love translate into wherever they go and whatever relationships they're in. I'm benefiting from it. Everyone that's listening to this is benefiting from it. So, thank you for your time. And
1: yeah, and thanks to both of you for the work you do and on such large platforms with um, what is perceivably, probably, a lot of risk. Till it's not. Till it's actually like so inspirational. So I appreciate you both that you stand in this and, and fight for these words and these conversations.
0: That yeah, feels more like freedom these days than anything, right? Where can, in case our listeners didn't hear the first episode, where can everybody track you down and find you?
1: Uh, you can find me on markroves.com, create the love on you know, most social channels. I haven't really gotten too TikTok-y. But it's hard. It's I don't now. know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I heard there's more dead people on Facebook than alive, so I'm not sure if I'll stay there either. But <laughs> <laughs> It's gotten to be a pretty old platform. But yeah, you can find me, createthelove.com, is where all my courses are. And uh, yeah, just fire me a DM DM if you need anything.
0: Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me. All right, yeah, peace. What's up, Comeback Stories family? It's Donnie dropping in here. So did you know that Darren and I's relationship started by me being his personal development, mindfulness, and mindset coach? I want to let you know about both my one-on-one coaching program, The Shift, and my group mastermind, Elevate Your Purpose. These coaching programs are specifically designed for people who are ready to take the next step in their purpose and level up their career, personal finances, and have more connected, deep and meaningful relationships. My gift and part of my purpose is to help others take that next step in leveling up their lives so that they can have a greater impact on the lives of others, create success, that's sustainable yet evolves and grows and help build a legacy that will outlive your life. If this is calling you, just go to DonnieStarkins.com and apply for either one of my programs.